0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, and I will start with this. From March 23rd, 1775. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. That's from the Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech of Patrick Henry. And I am reminded of that because... We are having this incredible Collegian Summit, the 29th Annual Collegian Summit, Phyllis Schlafly Eagles gathering in Washington, DC, a handful, more than a handful, a bunch of college students in person, but most of it's virtual. And our theme has been focused on vigilant, active, brave, taking those two, the three adjectives from this great iconic line. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. And so as we've been talking tonight, we've been talking to Congressman Thomas Massey, Congressman Matt Gaetz, uh, Joe Flynn, the uh, leader of the America Project. We've talked to Bridget Van Means, one of the iconic uh, pro-life leaders. We've had a chance to see Jack Posobiec, all these different folks gathered for the Collegian Summit. Some of, some of it virtual. If you go to com slash collegians, you can see it. We'll post all of these 20-minute conversations. Fascinating. Armstrong Williams the kind of uh, media guru, you know, uh, communicator, uh, um, you know, of of such renown. Uh, We have uh, actually had Hans von Spakovsky, who's written the book, literally, on election fraud. And I was interested, uh, uh, Sarba Sharma, who is the president of the American Moment, sort of an America first group, phenomenal guy. And uh, we had a conversation with him. So lots happening, lots of exciting stuff. The question is, the vigilant, the active, and the brave, as we've talked about, when this, uh, these three adjectives were, pro- were proposed to all these different leaders, they had different responses for collegians. And I remember distinctly from earlier, Joe Flynn saying, you just have to stand up. He actually, I don't know if he said the phrase, but he, he sort of implied, you don't have to gain ground. You just have to not stand down. And I'm reminded so often. You watch what the woke culture is doing. You watch what the government, the narrative machine, is doing. It is punishing the people that stand up. You're not even punished for making progress. In fact, oh, Congressman Matt Gates was here. Congressman Matt Gates has been the subject of literally thousands of articles, thousands of uh, of of, um, broadcast uh, segments over allegations. Nothing's ever proven. In fact, a a bribery scheme against him, a blackmail scheme against him was uh, proven. And so he was here. But Joe Flynn's point, if you're going to be vigilant, active and brave, first you have to stand up. And what I would add to that is when you hear these different leaders, when you hear all these different folks, uh, Alex Newman, who is at the collegians, the common denominator, if I can say, is not the vigilance activity or brave. It's not even the standing up. It's the understanding of solidarity that you and me and collegians and adults and seniors and and left-wing, right-wing, Democrat-Republican who believe in American exceptionalism and see what's happening with our government and our media and big tech. We need to stand up And we need solidarity with each other. I I interviewed last week for 18 minutes on this radio program, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf, I think she's the feminist's feminist. She's. I mean, t- there's some of the other one, women that are more famous, Gloria Steinem and such, but they're not really serious. I mean, well, that's not fair. They, they led the movement or the pieces of the movement when they were in the, in the game. But Naomi Wolf for the last 20 years has been intellectually writing books, giving speeches. I, I think I disagree with her on almost every fundamental issue, except she's decided at this moment in history that she's afraid of the size and scope and power of government and the wokeness. And especially when it came to individual health and control of your body, she's just been devastated. If you read her book, and I have, I bought a copy of it because I was having her on the show, and I thought, oh man, I don't want to give Naomi Wolf a uh, uh, you know a, 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 the profits of a book. And I and then I interviewed her, and I went out and bought the book, and it came yesterday. It's called The Body of Others: Authoritarians. Uh, excuse me, the bo- Let me get it full right. Excuse me, The Body of Others. It's by Naomi Wolf, and the full title is The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, and the War Against the Human. And I was reading it last night. I haven't read the whole thing, but I read a lot of it. And my, my listeners, you know my trick, read the first, and last par- uh, the first and last chapter and you get a sense of where the book is. Well, she's got this interesting way she wrote it. She wrote um, the chapters where there's some uh, sort of, um, how to say, factual arguments. And then there's a sort of reflection piece uh, where she's writing in, in italics on the page and in sort of her own voice. You can hear it. It's really interestingly done. Anyway, I think she and I agree on the fundamental moment we're in. And so when you when you listen to again to Joe Flynn Bear Wozniak, the the, the world class surfer who now has started a ministry, appears on a reality TV show, a bunch of Christian men riding around on motorcycles, and he's done this. That's called the long ride home. He's written a book called the Way, the Deep Adventure: The Way of Heroic Virtue. His website: Bear School of Manliness dot com. Bears school of manliness.com is fascinating. All these people. The point I'm saying is this. Remember what I've told you in order to not waver, in order to not uh, hide, in order to not sit down, fall down, break down in order to stand up, you have to have roots in the basics. Scripture, the founding fathers, the constitution, you got to sink roots into real stuff but then you can't do it alone. You can't be buffeted by the winds and the waters and the rages alone. You've got to have solidarity. You've got to band together. You don't need a thousand people. Well, the famous John Wesley code, give me a hundred men. You need a hundred. You need 10. You certainly need one if you're married. You need one who's with you. But you need, we need to build the solidarity. And so the call from Patrick Henry in March 1775, the give me liberty or give me death speech where he says, the battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. And what I'd add add to that is, as Joe Flynn called you, stand up. But I would add to that and build around you solidarity and be solidarity for each other in this environment, in this moment, in this battle, because you can't do it alone. You don't need to. You don't need. You don't. Need, you don't need the majority. You don't need eighty percent. You just. You, but you can't do it alone. And whether it's uh, Naomi Wolf's book, "The Bodies of Others," or it's uh, Joe Flynn's uh, speech at Collegians, or it's the leadership of uh, Congressman Burgess Owens in uh, the Congress, Super Bowl champion, father, I think of seven, business owner, won a Super Bowl. I mean, how many people won the Super Bowl? I I always forget which team. He gets mad at me. I think it was the Raiders. I think he won with the Raiders, and uh, I think they beat the uh, Eagles, which I got to remember because I got to tease my friend who's an Eagles fan. But my point here is build, sink your roots, sink your roots. Yeah, he won with the Raiders, uh, beat the Jets, sorry. But sink your roots and then be in search of solidarity and be solidarity for other people. That's the key, seems to me, at this moment. And that does mean party structures. It does mean be participating in politics. That's true. It does mean participating in your church. That's true. It does mean participating in your community. It's true, but it's not the only thing and it's not. And you shouldn't look only to the usual um, spaces and places and groups where you'd get solidarity because Lord knows I would not have picked. Naomi Wolf as somebody who I would listen to and think, how can I understand what she's saying? How can I utilize what she's saying? You got another guy like that is Glenn Greenwald. I don't really agree with Glenn Greenwald on a bunch of politics or a bunch of policy, say, but listening to him and watching him talk about the, 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 um, the denigration, the, the breakdown of the media. Matt Taibbi, same thing. These guys I don't agree with, but they're solidarity. They're in solidarity with those of us that are saying something's wrong in this country. What can we do to change the course? How do we stand up? How do we build solidarity? How do we go forward? If you want to, please visit com slash collegians. You will be able to see this whole program that we had earlier uh, today. It's streamed live. We'll be putting it up on YouTube in snippets. I think we had 18 speakers In for 20-minute conversations with questions from collegians, with answers from the guests, a good time, you know, joy, but real bolstering, real sinking of roots, real solidifying who we are and what we know, and great solidarity. It was a very important uh, event, and I hope you will go and get fortified by it there. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got a lot. A lot on the show, a lot to cover, and uh, we will move right through it. The one thing I want to tell you is visit proamericareport.com, proamericareport.com, and you will see all these different great interviews we're doing, uh, and others. We'll get a breakdown, uh, from Ted Malik about ESG, what a failure it is in terms of the uh, value for our, uh, for our, um, uh, Businesses to turn to this ESG thing. And uh, so we'll talk. To, and we'll also have, I'm very excited about this. We'll have a, an interview with Jeff Stevens about his book, Fool's Errand, which has a lot to do with fatherhood and his father, and it's a novel, uh, but he's got a great interview. It's a great book. Father's Day's coming. And I just encourage people, find the great periodicals, uh, excuse me, the great books, novels that deal with fathers. Jeffrey Stevens has written one I like a lot. So uh, we'll talk with him in a few moments and a lot more. Again, visit uh, ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email, the daily wink there, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, I was thinking about Father's Day coming. My father came down for my daughter's graduation, so I was having some time with him. And I was thinking about Father's Day, and I was thinking about authors that have written books about fathers. Larry Elder, of course, has a a fascinating memoir about – about his father and his tumultuous relationship and ultimately sort of reconciling before his father passed away, which we'll talk with Larry about that in a few weeks. But another book that I enjoyed reading and then having as a guest, uh, the author Jeffrey S. Stevens, uh, is the author of many books. If you go to jeffreystevens.com, you'll see his books. But the one that I remember and one we're going to talk about, he's on now is Fool's Errand and it was uh, published by Post Hill Press. I think if I'm getting it right, yeah, Post Hill Press. And it's about a son. It's about a father. It's uh, it's a very interesting setup. Uh, we'll talk about that. So, first of all, welcome back, Jeffrey Stevens. How are you, sir? I'm great. And thank you so much for having me back. Well, you're welcome. And before we get to that, you are an author now. I mean, you've had other things in your life. Uh, you know, you've in your businesses and things. But you're an author now. We were talking off the air about another book you've got uh, coming soon. But when you went to write this book, "Fool's Errand" is the book. Um, how did your did your relationship with your father? motivate it and how does it fit together because it is a novel it's not it's not uh, a memoir but it, i know it's overlaying with uh
2: with relationships so talk about a little bit about that well thanks yes the, the the plot is obviously fictional uh and a lot of the relationship between the father and the son that came from my own experience i had a very interesting and difficult father maybe uh-huh. not as bad as larry elder uh, but yeah. what happened was during the early stages of the pandemic I decided, because I had written a number, as you know, of of espionage thrillers, and the new one coming out is is in that group, but I wanted to do something a little different because family was so important at that time, and closeness, and so on and so on, and I also think there's, we all know that there's a problem in this country with the nuclear family, and people not perhaps respecting enough with regard to parents, and the relationship with children, and all of that, so we got into this conversation, as there were a lot of conversations during the pandemic, and the question came up. If you could spend one day with somebody who's no longer around, who would it be? And, of course, a name that comes up prominently is Jesus Christ. Uh, Some people said Winston Churchill. Some people said, uh, you know, John Kennedy, whatever. But a lot of people said, boy, if I could just spend one more day with my mother, or if I could just spend one more day with my father, I'd like them to know where I am now and what I've done and all of that. And it got me to thinking. And so I came up with the device of the story and I'm not, this is no spoiler alert because it happens right on the front page. Right. We learn that this young man finds a letter in a box that his father who had died six years earlier had written him just before he died. Uh-huh. And that spins all of the action into happening where this young man now has to decide whether or not he's going to pursue his father's dreams. Cause his dad was always one of these dreamers and he always had the big deal and the brass ring that he never quite reached and all, all of this. And so the, the character has to decide, as the title indicates, will he go on this fool's errand? And of course, we know that he does. Otherwise, it, wouldn't have been, it would have been a short story, <laughs> not a book. So anyway, um, that's where it all came from. I wanted to explore the relationship between parents and children, particularly a father and a son. And I wanted to make it fun. And so, as you know, because you've kindly enough read it, that it's an international treasure hunt and with a lot of very colorful characters coming in and out. And the other thing I wanted to do, if I may add this, is because we were all sort of locked up during the pandemic, I wanted to make sure that it got us out of our own space. So it goes from New York to Las Vegas and ultimately to the south of France, to the Riviera, I just wanted it to be that kind of the scenic thing as well. And so that's the whole beginning of the book.
1: We're talking with uh, Jeffrey Stevens. And again, Post Hill Press uh, is the uh, publisher of his book. And you can go to his website and track down all of his writings, JeffreyStevens.com. And uh, the book, of course, is Fool's Errand. So how did you work out as as an author, your own, how do you work out the relationship you had with your father? You mentioned him a little bit, and the father in this. When I read this, and now that I've talked to you, when I read Fools Errand and look back at it, I, I can't. I, 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 the characters in there, Blackie, uh, and and how I, I think that must be Jeff Steve, Jeffrey Stevens' dad. H- how do you work out the sort of reality of it and the fiction of it, and the and the playfulness as a writer?
2: Yeah, it is. It is playful and it is fun, and a lot of it was very poignant. I must say because. Many of the episodes were very close to what happened in my own life, in my in the conflicts I had with my dad and so on. Um, as I say, the overall story didn't happen. You know, the story didn't happen as it, as it is laid out. But the characters are very much as I saw them and sort of examining those relationships and and the ups and the downs of everything I went through with my dad. So it was really a lot of fun to go through that. There was there was one scene towards the end of the book, and I won't say which one it was but a writer friend of mine, when we were editing the book, I said, you know, I really had a, a number of other scenes. And he said, you know, we've got to get rid of some of these scenes. We've got to I- increase the pacing. It is a very well paced book. It's not a long book. It reads quickly. It's a page turner. And there was one scene at the end and it w- it really happened. This scene happened exactly as it's portrayed. Mm. And when I said to this other writer, name of Chris Beakey, I said, what do you think about that scene? And he said to me, if you take that out, I'll kill you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow.
2: Every time I read that scene, I cry. I said, okay, good enough. We're leaving it in.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's a, is it, it, I hate to say this phrase in the modern era, but but is it, was it, is it therapeutic for you to have written it and then also have, uh, when you read it and hear people like me talk about it, does it, does it help you process or uh, kind of maintain the connection to your father, improve it? Uh, How does that work out?
2: Let me answer that in two parts. I'll take the second part first, which is to say, when people talk about it, it's really fun. It's like having my dad around again. There's, right. there's, you know, because he died many years ago. And so there, there's, you know, there's a lot of fun to it. In terms of the therapeutic part, I think all writers uh, are are doing therapy when they write, even when I'm writing my spy thrillers. I'm living through these, these fantastic spies who work for the CIA and the work they do in protecting our country and keeping us safe. And uh, my main character was based on someone I know who was actually a CIA operative. And of course, again, it's fictionalized, but it's, it's always sort of therapeutic to look at those things, to get a sense of who you should be and who you would want to be. Look uh, this may be too sweeping a statement for some people. I know we live in a woke a woke world or something, right. but I didn't know any guy growing up who didn't want to be James Bond. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Right. I mean, you walked into the room and you wanted to be a, the best looking guy there b the guy that all the women were interested in and c the guy who could take down anyone who came at him. I mean, right, that right. was the fun of James Bond. I mean, he was yeah. invincible. And so, you know, you want to fictionalize some of that, but then you also want to deal with the fact that, you know, I'm really not that guy. So what's <laughs> right. missing?
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, and by, let me drop one thing in. We're talking with Jeffrey Stevens and his uh, website, jeffreystevens.com. You'll see fool's Errand there. It's a great book for father's day. And I'll get to one point on what you just said, but I will tell you that um, the tender bar, the book that was written uh, by um uh J.R. Moringer and, and sure. J.R. Moringer, his, his cousin, his best friend in the book, the one that goes away to Arizona and comes back, the young kid, is a guy in from St. Louis. His name's McGraw Millhaven. I had McGraw on the show and he said the best part about my, my cousin writing the book and then the tender bar movies, he said, it, it keeps alive. Our uncle, the uncle, I forget his name, the uncle in, sure. in the movie. And, and he said, so there's a sense of sort of, you are, as you say, you're, you're instilling some life. And now I do want to say as to things like uh, father's day and nobody I know. He, also, if your line is right about everybody w- wants to be James Bond or walk in a room of a certain age, there, I don't know anybody that doesn't have a wonderful, um, no matter what mixed thoughts of their relationships with their father and mother and siblings, right? That's what, that's what family is actually. I agree. And so when you read a book, that's got a sort of um, certain attention to the relationship and in a way that makes you sort of stop and think, because the one thing about fool's errand, as you say, sets up at the beginning, it's just like, there's this letter and suddenly the father's, sort of intruded into the life of the son after all this time. And it makes somebody who's written reading, thinking about their own father who's gone now or, or, or disconnected or whatever. It has a certain, uh, uh I don't know, um uh, ability to I think make us think and feel a little
2: differently. I, I hope so because the nicest thing that anyone ever says to me about the book and I, I, you know, I love when they love the book and they show a terrific story, but I cannot begin to tell you how many men and women would say to me, I read that book and the next thing I did was I called my mother or I called my father. That's, that's Uh the best thing you say, because obviously as you say, it 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 would be ridiculous for anyone to say that they had a perfect relationship with a parent. I mean there've got to be ups and downs there've got to be there's got to be disciplinary issues there's got to be something going on there. right, right. My relationship with my dad was very mixed, and the character in this book has a very mixed relationship with his father. He knows his father was charismatic and he was any fun and interesting, but he was also had a dark side and was difficult to deal with, and so on. so I think it's wonderful to look at all of those things. Because that's really the fabric of our lives. That's what makes us who we are. And part of the point of Fool's Errand was that the father who had died six years before the story begins still has this amazing pull on his son. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my dad yeah. died. I don't want to tell you how many decades ago, <laughs> right. but I still think about him. And I, and there are moments when I say, gee, I wish my father could be here to see this. Mm-hmm. So
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, JeffreyStevens.com. Go there. Find out more about Fool's Aaron. It's a good one for Father's Day. Real quickly, Jeffrey, tell me about the next book that's coming out. Give us a preview, please.
2: I will be very quick. I'll say this, by the way, JeffreyStevens.com. Stevens is with a PH, everybody. Yes, so, thank so you. start looking for it. Yep. Uh, the new book is called The Handler, and it's, it's a, a new series of, of I, another sp- espionage series that I've started with a new series of characters, uh, two CIA agents, a man and a woman who work together. And instead of the usual thing, the usual applesauce where they have a romance, they don't have a romance. These are tough CIA agents. And it's all about some terrorist attacks in the United States based on the edicts of the Koran. So it's a little bit controversial, um, but I'm very proud of it. I think it's a very realistic book. The Handler comes out August 30th.
1: Very good. Thank you very much, uh, Jeffrey Stevens. And as you mentioned, thank you for doing that. Stevens, uh, dot com. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. I'll put it up on social media too. Uh, have a great uh, Father's Day.
2: And thanks. Thanks. For right Happy up. Father's thanks Day, everybody. Thank yeah. you so much for having me, Ed. And thank you for everything you do.
1: Thanks. Oh, you're very nice. Thank you. Jeffrey Stevens, everybody. We'll take a break and be back. I'll put it all up on social media. You can find a link to his website as well as to his books. And uh, we'll be right back. Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. <music> welcome back welcome back ed martin here on the pro america report my friend ted malik is with us and ted was uh, prolific. We talked last week. I think it was last week. And he said, Well, I'm working on one piece. It's called Is ESG a Scam? Which I want to talk to him about. It's environmental social governance investing. Uh, and it, it's a really great, um, column up over an essay over at uh, American Greatness. But Ted, before that, you be a day or two before that, I think it was, you wrote a very nice piece, which reminded me of the book you wrote. There's a book, Davos, Aspen, and Yale. My Life Behind the Elite Curtain as a Global Sherpa by Ted Ted Malik. And I was reading that book. In fact, I was reading the book, and it is really kind of a memoir, but it goes through all the things. And you, as you talk in this piece at American Greatness, still no God or man at Yale. And it's, it echoed the book. It was a, a really fun for me, having just been reading your book again, rereading those chapters. So first thing I want to ask you, I remember seeing Clarence Thomas at an event and asking him, he went to Holy Cross where I went and then also went to Yale law. He went to Yale law school. And I remember asking how Holy Cross was. And he said something like, you know, barely hanging on. And then I said, how's Yale? And he said, Yale stinks. And he just went into a a tie. This is 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, When you say still no God or man at Yale, maybe so, but Yale is still so dominant in the, in the American political and business scene, right? They haven't lost that edge.
3: Uh, no, indeed, they have over well over $30 billion in endowment. They are very choosy about the students that they accept. Uh, and, and it has what's called a medallion credential. So, yeah, I mean, people will spend upwards of 70, $75,000 a year uh, on a very competitive basis to go to a place like Yale or Harvard or any of the other ivy. So, I mean, I talked about uh, <clears throat> Yale in this piece. This was an update on what did appear in my book. To celebrate the 70th anniversary of Bill Buckley's original classic, uh, God and Man of Yale. Mm -hmm. So it's it's basically an uptake on that. But tells the story from my perspective. After Buckley, long after he is gone, uh, he thought Yale was going south. I say there's only deep south in Antarctica.
1: <laughs> and it's gone all the way. Yeah. Well. All right. So I did. I, I could spend a whole sh- a show on that. Maybe we should find another hook to do that. But I want to talk about this ESG, um, environmental, yep. social governance investing. And the the hook for me was they were coming. They're coming after Musk. They're trying desperately to find things to say that are wrong with Elon Musk. Um, and that one of them is that he hasn't been doing enough of this. I think. I, I don't know. I, I tell. First of all, tell me what this is. Broadly, you've been in business for decades, and and, and watched this stuff. Is it yeah, is yeah. is it is no. it a real thing? And I don't mean is it real. I don't, I think you say in this it's a scam, but is it's having a real effect, right?
3: Oh yeah, no, it's 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 affecting financial and uh, uh, you know stock trading markets. It's, it's you know upwards of six trillion dollars in now, all So it's not nothing. Right. Musk uh, uh, tweeted, I think it was about a week ago now. Uh, that that uh, ESG is a scam. I'm, I probably most people don't even know what ESG is, uh, but they hammered him for you know lack like of disclosure around key environmental social issues. Uh, I mean, all he did is really start a uh, electric car <laughs> company, right? Um, yeah. So, I mean, this has to do with what's called sustainable investing, um, <clears throat> and um, they try to you know score measure the sustainability of an investment based on specific categories. And it's flawed. I mean, I'm I'm going to say why ideologically it's wrong, but it's also flawed. Uh, Not all of these factors are easily quantifiable. Many of them can't be quantified. Factors uh, may not directly translate into earnings growth or enhanced performance of the firm. So they don't really tell you what to invest in and not to invest in. They're heavily skewed towards process and procedures as opposed to actual performance. But here's here's the key. ESG is part of a scam based on the World Economic Forum, what's called stakeholder theory of capitalism, where shareholders get shafted. Mm-hmm. I call it pink socialism, trying to force itself into the capitalist and, and corporate game, and it should be called out for what it is. It, uh, it, we- you know, it's an end run.
1: We're talking to Ted Malik, but Ted, I wanted to ask you this. This is, I, I noticed in my calendar, funny why that one of the guys that I really came to admire, August Bush the third, who was for 25 years ran Anheuser busch very successful company. And then it got taken over by the Belgian company, Imbev, And, and it was sort of a sad mm. ending in a way to the, to the company. But, um, I, I got to know him enough and, and you knew scores of these people that were top level CEOs who had. A real gift for leading and they did have a sense. Of how they fit into the community. So, August Bush the Third, when he ran Anheuser Busch, it was a civic partner in all kinds of things, from from uh, ball ball fields to to soccer stadiums to whatever. Right? It was and it was part of their marketing, but it was also part of their ethos. When they got became a a um, a, a, a foreign company, it, it, they just changed the dynamic. And the dynamic was, we're going to squeeze all the profit we could. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not illegal. But we used to have leaders that could run these companies, like maybe Musk is. Saying he is that we said, hey we we see their sensibility and their ethos, and that is uh, helpful for our nation and so and I, I think the ESG is trying to enforce as you say, an ideological argument they wouldn 't like uh, august bush the third 's approach before, but you know something about the the dynamic is making it so people see corporations maximize profits to go to China. That wasn't good for we, the people, America first, but this
3: isn't good either. Is there a middle ground? I don't think it's a question of middle ground. So, I, you know, I've written extensively about this subject. This is sort of my favorite thing, what I'm known for. We even made a PBS special of all things about doing virtuous business about good companies. So the first thing is that virtue signaling is very different than virtue practicing. So what I claim is that business is everywhere, and it's not just an American phenomenon, uh, and across all industries. So it doesn't have to do with the sector. It doesn't mean that oil and gas companies have to be excluded. Uh, Companies that ignore that customers come first, that employees matter, that governance is an expectation, that environmental damages indeed can be costly, are problematic. And for decades and decades and decades, I think really good companies knew those things, and they didn't need some kind of stakeholder theory to suggest that, uh, that they needed to get there. They did it on their own. They were good leaders. They were good companies and they built very good businesses. And I think we need to get back to that definition of shareholder value, not profit at, 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 at uh, at all costs. These companies were profitable, but they didn't put profit first. They became profitable because they did those things.
1: Yeah, we're talking with uh, Ted Malik, and I'm looking at uh, the many books that you've written and essays on this. And one of them that I have on my shelf, Common Sense Business uh, Principles for Profitable Leadership, all in this, as you say, in this. uh, So in this area of how do how do people lead? I mean, but so back to ESG. Uh, environmental social governance investing. The other part of this, I think that you're saying is the ESG is then used. It's, it's, it's a scam. The World Economic Forum does this thing, but then it's used by governments and by uh, media and big tech to pressure uh entities to react to it right i mean that's the other part of this it's kind of the i call it the narrative machine where big government comes up with something in this case big business comes up with something and then the media and tech reinforce the narrative saying haha that company's not responsible most people mm-hmm. have no idea what the company looks like they just are hearing uh from big tech and big media a message that's the other part of this that's a problem right
3: yeah i know and it's been been quite effective and, and very widespread uh so uh, in, in, in terms of investing, it also skews the investor towards these companies, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, companies like BlackRock and others have now huge ESG funds. This is all the trend in the investment world. And when you talk to, uh, you know, in, in millennials or younger people, they say, well, I'm not going to invest in any of these capitalist companies. I'm only interested in ESG funds. Well, first of all, as I've just explained, you can't measure these things. And secondly, it's a dubious and probably a scam.
1: Yeah, Uh, we're talking with Ted Malick. Ted, in your piece, over at American Greatness, I'll put it up there, you refer to the the use of the courts, too, then to sue – uh, are there you know there are shareholder suits right where the shareholders will say hey wait a second you're mismanaging things we that we we don't want that to disappear completely but in this case you have sort of what stakeholder suits and and in other parts of the world i think i remember australia you referred to that that they're, you know you, you people are using these the esg as a hook to go in and basically uh well, i don't know damage or change corporations uh uh completely
3: Yeah, well, that's the whole impetus is, is, you know, it's it's not a superficial thing, meaningless thing. They want to invest in companies, take over these companies, skew them in a certain direction. And you see that. I mean, I could name companies that are going in this direction all because of the so-called stakeholders. They argue, even though many of them, most of them don't have shares in the company, that they have a stake in these companies. It's basically a form of socialized capitalism. That's what it is
1: hmm um and is it growing now or is it is it is it ebbing or flowing is it is it are we in a in for more of this fight it's grown phenomenally
3: yeah no in europe it's it's more or less mainstream it's come to the u.s as i said the numbers are very large and growing uh Mm -hmm. all of the major investment houses have these funds uh and i think more and more of them are skewing their investments in this direction. So. It's it's not something that that is a spent force. It's something that's very much on the horizon. We ought to be aware of it. When I wrote this piece last week, I got a, a lot of emails. Always do, and one one of the emails was I won't say from whom, but a very very big. Uh, leading business authority he said, thank you for th- bringing this to our attention. I just called my stockbroker and said, don't touch any of these funds.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, that's that, that's probably smart, too. But uh all right. Last uh, qu- uh, question, Ted. And in, in when you're watching a you said socialized capitalism as a phrase and you're watching right now, you're you're seeing inflation numbers like we haven't seen in forever you've been talking for a couple of months about this um you know where yeah. are we where are we now are we are we now uh how fast are we into this uh hard times
3: oh no we're i've been <laughs> predicting this for nine months for a year and nobody wanted to listen i was a crying voice in the wilderness with some others no th- this is not peaked. this is not transitory we are in for some really really hard times and And Larry Kudlow has said this on TV this last week. It's going to be rough. The Fed uh, is basically the only tool we have left, and they've got to raise interest rates. That's not a pleasant phenomenon. They're probably going to do it a half percent. I think they should do it a whole percent, and they're going to have to do it a lot more and a lot more often. It's not going to be a pleasant few years. Hmm. But I'll tease you with my next new piece, as I <laughs> often do. So I have yeah. to talk to You're Ed good. Martin again. Yeah. <laughs> my next new piece, which I'm writing just as I speak to you, is called Biden's Top Gun Advisor.
1: Oh, Biden's Top Gun Advisor. Can I guess who it is? Everybody's
3: it's been asking, Susan, who's advising the Susan, president? You know, all Susan this Rice. Mysteries. It Ron Klain. It... No, 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 no. Hunter Biden is just (laughs) Top Gun, Move Over Maverick, (laughs) Top Gun, Co-Pilot. And you can read my next article on this <laughs> subject.
1: All right. Ted Malick never disappoints. The teases are probably the, my favorite part, I have to admit, because they come as a surprise. All right. Ted, thank you. As always, we will talk again next week about that. Hunter Biden in the in, the, in a Ted Malek uh, column as a top gun advisor to Joe Biden. That's funny. Read the ESG column by uh, Ted Malek. It will inform what you do. And uh, his book, again, I mentioned Davos, Aspen, and Yale. Uh, super. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report back. In a moment,
4: this is the Phyllis Schlafly report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Mrs. Schlafly was a courageous and articulate voice for traditional values and common sense for more than 70 years. Now, continuing that legacy, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. After the announcement of the decision by Twitter's
1: board of directors to accept a purchase offer by the billionaire turned free speech advocate Elon Musk, one Twitter employee readily reflected the overall liberal fixation. Twitter employees in general. He asked Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal whether Donald Trump would be reinstated on the platform. Agrawal said he didn't know. Trump, however, stated that he does know. He's not returning to Twitter, even if he's allowed back. This sets the stage for Musk to beg and urge Trump to return, which is how the free market works best. Trump plans to work on lifting his own platform called Truth Social by posting there instead of his old roost on Twitter. Trump's platform is outside of European censorship rules and need not cave into demands by leftist trolls or allow their stream of vile, senseless response tweets that are welcomed by Twitter and litter Trump's prior account there. Although Trump made clear that, I'm not going on Twitter, I'm going to stay on truth, he still did not wish ill on Musk. Trump said, I hope Elon buys Twitter because he'll make improvements to it and he's a good man but I'm going to be staying on truth. This well-wishing from President Trump not only shows his own class, but the promise of what lies ahead for Twitter with Musk in charge. Twitter's pre-Musk board of directors took in a total of $3 million in compensation annually, and Musk has vowed to have a volunteer board for Twitter to save that waste. In fact, Musk seeks to take the company private so that it will no longer be subject to intrusion by securities regulators. Amid its increased censorship, Twitter's stock had fallen sharply in the last nine months, and its bankers reportedly advised Twitter that restoring value required accepting Musk's offer. The saga of big tech is far from over. Musk's big move is only the first of many battles, I believe. Yet I think it's appropriate to take a moment to appreciate the irony that for all the left's praise of electric vehicles, their virtue signaling only fueled Musk's ability to recapture Twitter from them. That is truly the free market at its finest.
4: This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. When big tech billionaires silence conservative voices on social media, the very core of American liberty vanishes. It's happening, and it's a slippery slope. At phyllisschlafly.com, we have a plan for protecting free speech. It starts with you. Please go to phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, let's finish things off. We just got a minute 20. I'm going to tell you about an, an essay That was written in uh, the 1960s, I believe. I know that it was republished by Phyllis Schlafly in 1968. And the title of the essay is Eagles Ride Storms, Lesser Birds Fear. Eagles Ride Storms, Lesser Birds Fear. And Norman Vincent Peale wrote this essay. And he was an extraordinary man. He was known for many, many things. And today, uh, um, as I'm uh, doing this program, it's uh, uh, June 14th, Flag Day and Donald Trump's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday to the flag and to Donald Trump. And uh, Donald Trump's pastor for many years was Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. He was the pastor at Collegiate Marble Church in uh, Manhattan, where uh, Donald Trump and his parents went to church every Sunday. But if you read this great essay, it's, uh, about, uh, the Americas Americans. We love eagles and we love the image of the eagles. And so he writes about how, uh, eagles go out into this, into the, into the fight, into the, um, wind, into the squalls and other birds, uh, duck down and hide out and, uh, and they go look for cover. And he goes on to talk about how amazing eagles are and, uh, finishes with a quote at the end uh, from, I think, uh, the coach of Notre Dame, Frank Leahy, uh, when the going gets tough, Let the tough get going. Uh, And it reminds me of, hey, you know, lesser birds hide. Lesser citizens hide. Uh, Not just be, you know, not just be vigilant, active, brave. Go out into the fight. That's what eagles do. That's why it's the American Eagle. All right. Have a great uh, day, everybody. We'll talk tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you tomorrow.